Hi, I'm Jeff Hebert, and welcome to my podcast, Gospel Wabi Sabi, God's Good News for Imperfect People. Especially want to welcome you if you're new to this podcast, and so let me just explain the title, uh, Gospel Wabi Sabi. Let me explain that for you. What I attempt to do in each episode of this podcast is to combine two things that are really important to me. First, the gospel, the stories of Jesus of Nazareth, his life and his teachings that are recorded for us in the books of the New Testament in the Christian Bible, and the way Jesus is revealed throughout all of Scripture, as we just saw in the last season in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. Jesus is the basis for who I am and everything my life is about, so I love to share what I've learned with you. And the second phrase, wabi-sabi, is a Japanese expression which describes an awareness, a way of finding beauty in imperfection. It's an awareness of the intrinsic value that others may not see. Think of the irregular shape of the rocks and the moss that covers an old stone wall, or the beauty of an old raggedy Bible, one that you've used for many years, you know, versus a new one right out of the box. The old one is beat up and worn out, but it's beautiful to you because of the way you've used it over the years. Well, that's what wabi-sabi is, which I think perfectly describes how Jesus related to people. He treated people with wabi-sabi. He saw their value. People who were broken, who had rough edges, who were beat up by life, who were lost or seeking, who were anxious or afraid. They found a deep grace in Jesus. There was something transforming about just being with Jesus. His presence helped them to see their value in God's eyes. And so this podcast is pretty much a straightforward Bible study, but with that wabi-sabi twist, it's good news for the imperfect. And if you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, please follow the link in the description, and it'll take you to the Spotify page where you can do just that. Also remember to leave a review or share this podcast with others. That helps to spread the word. Well, many of you are loyal listeners, and you've been through all three of the previous seasons, first on the Gospel of John, the Psalms of David, the Wisdom of Ecclesiastes, and I thank you for that. And now I'm excited for us to launch into a new season of Gospel Wabi Sabi, season four. Excited because we're going to focus our attention around one single word, one very powerful word, the word hope. Hope. The word hope in the Bible is not just wishful thinking, like I hope the giants win today or I hope I don't lose my job. No, biblical hope is a confident expectation, an assurance, something that comes with an absolute guarantee because it's based on the character and the promises of God. Hebrews 6.10 says it this way, We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. We have hope in the Lord Jesus. We can have hope in a good future because Jesus is the anchor of our soul, an anchor that won't give way no matter how strong the storm. We hope in something eternally solid, always dependable, always faithful, always merciful. We hope in the Lord Jesus. Now, our sense of hope affects everything we do. What we believe about the future shapes the choices we make in the present. If you have hope, if you believe in something, that there's where you're willing to invest yourself. If you have hope, you invest your time, your energy, your money, your best self into that which gives you hope. But if you don't have any hope, your life shrinks. You hold back, you withdraw, you become risk averse. You play it safe or you just stop trying. Without hope, people give up. There are so many sad stories of people who have lost hope. They've given up on their marriages, their family, their job, their future. They give up on themselves, really. 
And people do give up on God when they lose hope. And on a larger scale, when people lose hope in their leaders, whole cities or nations can descend into chaos and violence, injustice, and even war. And that's why we all need hope. Now, the gospel is a story of hope centered in Jesus Christ, and we'll explore how God brings the hope of Christ to our lives through these stories told in a not-so-well-known portion of the Bible called the Minor Prophets. The Minor Prophets, it's that portion at the end of the Old Testament from Hosea through Malachi. It's 12 separate books grouped together and called the Minor Prophets. Minor, not because they don't matter as much, but simply because they're shorter than the big dog prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Though often overlooked, the minor prophets have something powerful to say to us about how God brings hope to the people when they need it most, when things are not going well, when the people of God are discouraged and floundering. God sent these prophets to bring people back into good relationship with himself. And so in this episode, we're going to start with the story of Hosea. Now, let me encourage you not to cheat. And by that, I mean that you don't just, you you never actually read Hosea, but you depend solely on the podcast. And that's true for all the minor prophets. You'll get so much more out of it if you take the time to read the books prior to listening to the podcast. They're not long. You can do it in probably under an hour. And Hosea is just a good one to start with because it's, it's such a good love story. Not a fluffy story of butterflies and rainbows, not the kind of story that airs on the Hallmark Channel. Now, Hosea is a gritty, even disturbing love story, a muddled, even upsetting love story, because Hosea has nobody's idea of an ideal marriage. Now, Hosea began his ministry around 800 BC and continued for about 50 years. His book only covers a small portion of his life and teachings. So let me set the table a bit. Uh, This ancient people of Israel became a powerhouse nation under King David around 1000 BC, David's son Solomon built on what David accomplished and led Israel to become really the envy of the ancient world in terms of its wealth and military power. Though Solomon was a wise man, often he did not follow his own advice, especially when it came to being a parent. And as I noted in the last season, Solomon had two good-for-nothing sons. When Solomon died, they went at each other tooth and nail over who should rule Israel. Their conflict escalated into a brutal civil war, And within that civil war, there was a rebellion, a rebellion against God and against following the covenant God had made with the people of Israel. As a result of them turning against God, the nation of Israel never again regained its former glory. The war split Israel into two nations, sort of a two-state stalemate that went on for several hundred years. The northern kingdom retained the name Israel. The southern kingdom took the name of its dominant tribe and was called Judah. The whole rest of the Old Testament story is about the successive kings of these two nations, how good or bad they were, mostly bad. Though overall, the kings of Judah did better than the totally corrupt kings of Israel. But in both nations, the kings were the ones who led the people further and further away from their God, Yahweh. They even began to tolerate the worship of the pagan gods from nations around them, especially Baal and Moloch, that detestable god of the Canaanites whose worship even included child sacrifice. That's how bad it was in Israel and Judah, and God was not going to let that situation continue indefinitely. Trouble was coming to both Israel and Judah, and the prophets had the job of warning and pleading with the people to come to their senses and return to their true God. 
Hosea was a young preacher in the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom. He was a contemporary of the prophets of Isaiah and Amos, and he lived, as we're told in the first verses of chapter 1, during the reign of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel. Jeroboam was one of the really wicked kings of Israel, so nothing good was happening when Hosea started preaching. Things were out of control, and people didn't have much use for God. They had bigger fish to fry. So people didn't really pay much attention to Hosea. When he spoke of judgment and chastisement and all the rest, when he said that God was going to raise up the nation of Assyria to punish this people, that a ruthless army would sweep across the land like locusts, the people paid very little attention to him. Thought he was just a wacko, you know, a religious nut. They thought Hosea's God was just a judgmental old meanie. And Hosea was given a dismissive pat on the head, you know, the interesting but harmless treatment. Hosea tried to tell them that God wasn't just about wasn't just about judgment and vengeance. He wanted them to know that God was a God of love, and the judgment he was bringing was actually an act of love. God had wanted them to see the damage they were doing to themselves, how far off track they had strayed as individuals and as a whole culture, and that the only way he could get their attention, the only way to get them to listen was to turn things upside down. But they didn't want to hear. Instead, they used the same old tire excuse. If God is really a God of love, then why does he let bad things happen? How could a God of love ever send the ruthless Assyrians down on our heads? So young Hosea found that people were polite to his face, but behind his back, they sneered. Hosea is discouraged, but in chapter one, God tells him to do a strange thing. God said, I want you to get married. And I think Hosea brightened up at that idea. He was probably a young man at this stage, a bachelor. He was probably ready to get all wifed up if he could only meet the right girl. And then God said, I've got a girl picked out for you. And he says, wow, that, that beats match.com or Tinder. God already had her picked out. Wouldn't it be great if it was that simple? I know some single people who wish it was that easy. A lot of people have prayed for God to do just that in their lives, right? Well, be careful what you pray for. The young woman God had chosen for him was named Gomer, and Hosea's was definitely interested in her. But then God said to him, I want you to know the whole story about this girl. I want you to marry her, but she's going to be unfaithful to you. In fact, she will become nothing but a common street prostitute, and I want you to marry her anyway. Now, Hosea had to be confused by God's strange command, just as Abraham was puzzled by God's command about his son Isaac. God does some strange things sometimes, things we don't always understand, things we can't really categorize, things that don't fit into what we think we know of God's nature. And this is one of those strange things. And he told Hosea, I want you to marry this girl, and she's not going to just commit adultery. She's going to sell herself to other men. I mean, can you think of anything that would crush a young marriage faster than that? Can you think of anything that would justify divorce more quickly than that? How humiliating to Hosea to be saddled with a wife like her. You see, it's not that God caused Gomer to be unfaithful. He didn't force that upon her. But in his foreknowledge, God knew that there was something in her heart, something restless, something dark, where she would not be satisfied with her life with her husband, Hosea, and her children. God didn't cause it, but God let it happen. And then he used it to tell a bigger story of hope and mercy. God goes on to say, Hosea, you're going to have three children, two boys and a girl. And when they're born, I want you to name, I want to name them for you. And God often used the symbolism of names to teach certain truths because back then the meaning of your name 
was really important to people, like like Jesus giving the name uh, Peter to his disciple Cephas. Uh, Peter meant the rock in Greek. And Cephas hadn't been all that steady, and God was planning to use Hosea and his family as an object lesson for the people of Israel. So Hosea went courting, and sure enough, he and Gomer were married. At first, it was heaven on earth. Hosea loved this girl. You can't read this book without seeing that. He fell for her head over heels in love. Their first years together must have been wonderfully happy. But it wasn't too long before Gomer started to veer off course. They had their first child, a boy, as God had said, and Hosea's heart was filled to bursting. And he went to God for the name of the boy. What should we name him? And to his surprise, God picked the name Jezreel. Now, Jezreel means castaway and was a name of shame in Israel. Remember the bloody story of Queen Jezebel? It's in 1 Kings 19 through 2 Kings 9. She's the pagan queen who tried to kill Elijah and did kill many of the other godly prophets. Eventually, God's judgment fell upon her. And she was looking out an upper story window one day when a general named Jehu, uh, who was down in the courtyard below, and he ordered his men to throw Jezebel out the window, and they did, and she died in the fall. They left her body where it fell to be eaten by stray dogs, and the courtyard was called Jezreel ever since. And that was the name God picked for Hosea's oldest boy. God was using Hosea's son as a warning to the people that they too would be cast away if they didn't recognize the folly of their actions, if they didn't turn from worshiping the pagan idols and being like the rest of the world. And God warned them with this baby's name. Then a daughter was born to Gomer and Hosea. And this one was named Loruhamah, which means not loved, not pitied. Imagine naming your little baby girl not loved. It meant that God would no longer have pity on his people if they continued their stubborn rebellion. His patience was wearing thin. After hundreds of years of trying to reach them, time was now running out. He was warning them that they were getting near the end of God's patience and that a time would come when he would no longer pity them, but would hand them over to invading armies. In a short while, Gomer conceives again. The third child is another little boy, and this one God named Lo-Ami, which means not my people. For God was saying, you are not my people, and I will not be your God. God was warning them again, I will disown you if you keep going down this rebellious path. Well, after this, Gomer began to fulfill the sad prediction that God had made when he told Hosea to marry her. What a heartbreak it must have been for Hosea as he hears the whispers that began to circulate about his wife, about what happened when he was away on his preaching trips. Maybe even his own children innocently said something about the men who visited when daddy was away. And soon it became obvious that Gomer was running around with other men. Think of the arguments, the tension, the desperation in that home. This isn't in the text, but I can imagine that one day Hosea came home and found a note from Gomer that said she decided to pursue the happiness she felt that she deserved, that she found her soulmate, that she was leaving him and the children to be with some guy that she thought was going to be a perfect match. Not only does she break the marriage covenant through adultery, but also through abandonment. So off she goes, leaving Hosea and the kids behind. About this time, a new tone came into Hosea's preaching. He still warned of the judgment to come and the fact that God was going to send the Assyrians down on Israel, but no longer did he announce it with thunder. He spoke to them with tears. And it began to speak of a day of hope, a day when love would at last triumph, when after the bitter lesson was learned, 
that the way of rebelling against God or ignoring God is hard, Israel would yet turn back to God, to the God who loved her. There would be a day of restoration. Hosea 2.23, I see as kind of the central verse in Hosea. It's a beautiful verse. Hosea 2.23, it's a verse of hope where God says through the prophet Isaiah, using the names of the children, but changing them slightly, God says, I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they will say to me, you are my God. So even in this time when God was announcing judgment, the hope of his grace was also being shown. Instead of not loved, she would be called loved. Instead of not my people, she would be named my people again. But for Gomer, things weren't working out the way she thought they would. Her soulmate was a fraud, and now she's getting passed around from man to man, and her life was out of control. She was on a death spiral, really. If she was a modern love story, she'd be a heroin-addicted prostitute working the dark streets of Newark. Finally, she fell into the hands of a man who was going to sell her to the highest bidder. You know, human trafficking with sex workers, it's not a new thing. It's a despicable thing. But news of her downward spiral came to Hosea, and I'm sure when he heard that Gomer was going to be sold at auction, the brokenhearted prophet went weeping to God, and God said, Hosea, do you love this woman in spite of all that she has done to you? And through his tears, remarkably, Hosea said yes. Then God said, then go get her. Go show your love for her in the same way that I love the nation Israel. And Hosea went out to find her. He went to the marketplace. He watched Gomer brought up on the platform, stripped of all her clothing, naked before the crowd. And then the bidding began. Somebody bid three pieces of silver, and Hosea raised it to five. Somebody else upped it to eight. Hosea bid ten. Somebody finally went to eleven. He went to twelve. And finally, Hosea offered fifteen pieces of silver and a bushel of barley. The crowd was silent, and the auctioneer's gavel fell. Hosea had his wife back. Hosea went to her, put her clothes on her, led her away by the hand, and took her to his home. Probably more than one person in the crowd thought that he was just a fool for doing so. But who can explain the madness of love? Love exists apart from reason and has its own power and impulse that often doesn't make sense. Love doesn't act according to logic. Love acts according to its own nature. And so Hosea acted on the basis of love and then follows what is one of the most beautiful verses in all the Bible. As Hosea led her away, he said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the harlot or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. That's Hosea 3.3. Did you hear that? Hosea pledged his love to her anew all over again. After all she had done to disgrace him, he now renews his pledge of love to her. And that was all this poor woman could take. She had fallen to the very dredges of shame and disgrace, but the love of this man broke through to her hardened heart, gently healed her, her damaged life. And from this time on, Gomer was faithful to Hosea. She became a faithful and loving wife, a gentle and caring mother. All this to illustrate that God does not give up. God does not give up on wayward Israel, and he doesn't give up on you or anyone else, no matter how much we stiff-arm God and how much we struggle, how weak our faith, how often we fail, or how easily we are led astray. God is a God of mercy 
and hope. The rest of the book of Hosea simply goes on to tell the effect of the story on the nation of Israel. God said to them, how can I give you up? He reminded them of his love for them all those years of his goodness, how again and again and again they had turned their backs on him, but God never gave up on them. The final picture of the book is one of beauty and glory, as it looks to the day when Israel shall at last be, uh, to last return to God as her true husband. And she'll say, and this is chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. And on the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. Israel's future hope was that the Messiah would come to water them like cooling rain revive their parched souls, and raise them up again. Can you see in this beautiful story all the elements of that eternal triangle? There's the loving God, the faithless human heart, and the deceptive attractiveness of the world. This is your story, and it's my story. It's everyone's story. So many times we try to satisfy ourselves with the lying idols of self-importance or wealth or the false promises of materialism or worldly love. Ours is a blindness that like Gomer's cannot distinguish between lust and love. We run from God thinking that happiness or fulfillment can be found in the way of the world, that happiness can be found in the bottom of a bottle or through work or through more money or through gaming or more activities. But like Gomer, we come to the point of realizing just how empty all those things are by themselves. When we pursue those things apart from Christ, God touches our sleeve with his love saying, my child, my nature is love, and I must act according to what I am. When you tire of all your running and your wandering and your heartbreak, I will be there to draw you to myself again. This is the story of the gospel, isn't it? This is the hope of the gospel. Through Jesus, God entered the slave market of this world where the whole human race was putting itself up for auction, prostituting itself and its humanity to a cheapened life. But on the cross, the Lord Jesus paid the price, the full price for our freedom, clothed us in his grace, and bought us back, redeemed us with his own blood. This is the story of God's love and God's heart, God's hope, his loving desire to make you the full person he has always intended for you to be, that he made you to be. Jesus promises never to give up on you. Jesus is relentless in his pursuit. He is absolutely insane in his love. It doesn't make any sense. It's not rational or logical. Just like Hosea's love, God's love for us borders on insanity. Jesus never gives up the search. And for those who are his own, Jesus said in John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and those who believe in me shall never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's the hope that we have in Christ. No falling from grace, no unforgivable sin, no losing one's salvation because of some besetting sin, no shame that can cancel out the power of Christ's forgiveness. God never turns his back. The same hope that was offered to Gomer through the love of her husband Hosea, the same hope offered to Israel through the love of their covenant-keeping God, the same hope offered to us through our Savior Jesus, the same gospel of hope that we can offer to people around us, hoping something eternally solid, 
always dependable, always faithful, always merciful. Hope in Jesus Christ. Hope you have a great week. Take care.